uh, Heritage College and Seminary, which I've been past a uh, professor of New Testament and Greek there for 10 years. And you know what? It has flown by. It only feels like nine and a half. So it's been, it's just flown by. And I'm um, grateful for uh, being there, grateful for what God has been doing uh, in our midst there, and excited for the new school year that starts this week, this Thursday for us, actually, this coming Thursday. And uh, ironically, it's still not too late if you're thinking of maybe auditing. Um, still not too late to sign up for an audit. Really cool thing. One thing that COVID has done for our school, what came out of that is that uh, all of our rooms now, all of our teaching rooms, classrooms are all live streamed. We have live streaming. So that means that, so for example, I have a Thursday morning class, it's weekly, um, but there'll be people on the screen who are taking the class from, from London or from Barrie, and they're, so we see them on the wall, they see us, they can ask questions, answer questions in real time, and so that's technology has come to our school uh, post-COVID, so we're excited for that and, and grateful for that opportunity, but we are in class, so it's good to be back uh, in class. So uh, although his father was a Baptist minister, R.C. had a very difficult childhood. Uh, in fact, looking back at his childhood, this is what he said. He said, the kindest thing I can say about my childhood is that I survived it. You see, when he was 12 years old, he was arrested for stabbing his scoutmaster. It was self-defense because his scout leader was actually trying to molest him. So it was self-defense. However, the judge didn't see it that way. And the judge sentenced young 12-year-old R.C. to six years in juvenile detention for simply protecting himself against this unwanted advances of a predator. So virtually his entire teenage years had been stripped from him, taken from him. Think back to how you spent your teenage years, or some of you are teens right now, how you're spending your teen years. For me, I spent my teen years like riding bikes with my friends, learning to drive and driving, hanging out, going to movies, that kind of thing. RC didn't get to do any of that. As a teenager, he spent his teen years behind bars in juvie. So when he was 18 years old, he was released, and he joined the Army. And it was there, while he was in the U.S. Army, that he discovered his gift. He was good at beating people up. He boxed. And as a boxer, he entered a number of amateur championships, and he won them all. And so he was excited because this is a bit of self-discovery for this young man. Like, oh, you know what? I, th I think I've found what I'm really, really good at, what I'm gifted at. I think what I'm, what I'm meant to do in life, how to make an impact, how to make a dent in the world, is through boxing. God's gifted me to do this. And so after he finished his time in the Army, he became a professional prize fighter. And in five short years, he rose through the ranks, and he became the number one ranked contender for the World Middleweight Championship. So he's next in line for that title shot, and he's on the cusp, on the edge of attaining this dream, his goal, and then it was taken from him. You see, wrong, uh, R.C. was wrongfully charged, wrongfully accused, and wrongfully convicted of a triple homicide, and he was sentenced to life in prison. 
So you can imagine this PK, this pastor's kid, probably spent many a night on that hard bed in his prison cell, head in hand, wondering whether in his heart or out loud, God, like, what are you doing? Like, God, what's happening? Why is this happening to me? Why me? Why now? Like, what is going on here? Have you been there? I mean, maybe you're there this morning. This morning, I want to take a look at a person in Scripture who was there for a time. His name is John the Baptist, and part of his story is found for us in Luke chapter 7. I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 23 of Luke 7. It's a small little paragraph, but I think it it packs a pretty powerful wallop for us this morning. I think the point of this story, as we're going to see, is that when faced with doubts about God, you have to ground your faith in who God is. Maybe you're here this morning and you're kind of doubting some stuff. You know, you've come through the last two years of the pandemic or maybe some other stuff, and you're just like, yeah, you know, I'm not sure where I'm at with God anymore. I'm not sure if he really cares for me the way the Bible says he's supposed to care for me. I'm not not even really sure if he exists. What is God? Who is God? If you're here this morning, uh, I've been praying, and I believe that this passage of Scripture will really impart grace to you, and certainly that is my prayer. When faced with doubts about God, we have to ground our faith in who God is. Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 18 to 23. Let me read these verses for us. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? The men came to Jesus, and they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we, pa- we pause once again in your presence, inviting your Holy Spirit to move powerfully through this word that he has preserved for us. Lord, would you strengthen us in your word this morning? Would you uh, encourage us? Would you comfort us? Would you rebuke us and instruct us through this, your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you a little bit of context uh, in terms of where this falls in Luke's story. Of Jesus. So, of course, the, the opening chapters, we see who Jesus is by his miraculous birth. And then in chapter 3, John the Baptist comes on the scene, and penitent Jews are coming out to be baptized because he's, he's preparing hearts for, for uh, the Messiah. Uh, Luke 3.20 tells us that Herod imprisons John. We'll come back to that point. But he doesn't imprison him before uh, before John is able to baptize Jesus, and after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, chapter 4, 
Jesus goes out into the wilderness of testing. And so he's tested by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And he, he returns triumphantly and victoriously. And he comes into the region of Galilee, beginning his public ministry. Right, his public ministry characterized by preaching the gospel and teaching, casting out demons, performing many miracles. So including in chapter 7, uh, he heals the, the centurion's son, uh, centurion's servant, heals him. And then right after that, he resurrects, he raises from the dead uh, the son of the widow from Nain. And so then we come to uh, verses, 17, uh, verses 18 to 23 in Luke 7. And this passage, I think, breaks down into two parts. And the first part deals with the sources of doubt. And the second part deals with Jesus' answer for doubt. So let's look at the sources of doubt. Verses 18 to 23. John's disciples told him about all these things. And all these things obviously referring back to what? Well, he just raised somebody from the dead. And before that, he's just healed somebody just with speaking a word. Calling two of them. Right, because John is in prison, calling two of his disciples, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? So, what has gotten into John? Like, could this be the very same John the Baptist who the first time he set his eyes on Jesus said, Oh, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He must increase, I must decrease. Like, could this be like that John? Like, what on earth has gotten into John the Baptist? Well, I think perhaps unfair circumstances. Perhaps. And in terms of unfair circumstances, there's two uh, particular aspects uh, of John's circumstances. One is injustice. Right, John was a victim of injustice. Like John was called by God to become a prophet. Right, John did not wake up one morning at 16 or 18 or 21 and say, hmm, you know, i got to make a decision. Soldier, farmer, shepherd, oh, prophet of God, I'll be a holy prophet. Like, no. God called John, and the story is earlier in Luke, that, that while John was still an infant in the womb, he's filled by the Holy Spirit. God called John to be his prophet, to prepare the way for God's Messiah. And so one of the things that prophets do, if you read the Old Testament, is they speak out against injustice and unlawfulness and sin. That's their job as commissioned by God. Well, John, being the responsible prophet that he was, preached against sin and unlawfulness. Like, for example, King Herod was shacking up with his brother's wife. That's not a good thing. That's called sin. John responsibly preached specifically against that unlawful union. What happens? Well, Luke 3.20, he's thrown in prison because of that. Because he's simply doing his job and doing it well. Think about that. You're an electrician, you're a plumber, you're a dentist, you're an architect, you're an engineer. You do your job well. Everybody knows you do your job well. And because of how well you do your job, prison. Is that fair? Like, what? That's unjust. Like, that's nonsense. RC, 
he was also a victim of injustice because it was later shown and demonstrated that the establishment, that, that, that it was racism that threw him in prison. This was in the 1960s in the U.S. during the Civil Rights Movement, and the white establishment ganged up to put this young black guy in jail for something he never did. He was a victim of injustice. There's another aspect of John's uh, circumstances besides injustice, and it's isolation. Right? John was isolated from Jesus' activity. Right? Remember, according to like Luke 3 and Gospel of Mark, John is in prison, and then after John is in prison, then Jesus comes and starts doing his, mirac- his miraculous uh, ministry of casting out demons and performing all these miracles, like healing, resurrecting the widow of Nain's son, things like that. But John never got to see any of that for himself. Why? Because he's in prison. And Jesus starts after he's in prison. So John is isolated from God's activity as God is at work in Jesus in his ministry. So he never got to see for himself the lame person walk. He never got to see for himself the leper cleansed. He only got it secondhand, thirdhand. Right? John knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who... Jesus healed. John was isolated from God's activity as it was advancing powerfully through the ministry of Jesus. When we don't see God at work, and we don't sense God at work, whether it's in in us as individual Christians or in our our spiritual family and fellowship, if we're not seeing God at work, then doubts can kind of slowly seep into our hearts. And into our minds, doubts about God. Like, God, what is God? Is God really there? Does God really exist? I know I've been taught that from my parents, from the pastor, but is he really real? Is the Bible really true? Doubts like that can kind of seep into our hearts. Because of a setup, R.C. found himself in prison for crimes he never committed. To add insult to injury, while he was in prison, he contracted this very serious eye illness. And so what should have happened is that the prison officials should have sent him out to the nearby hospital to have surgery done on the eye once he's healed up in a couple days and sent him back into prison. That's what should have happened. But what instead happened was that the prison officials felt, nah, we got the, we got the facilities, we can handle this. And so they, they did the operation on his eye, they botched the operation, and as a result of their botched operation, our scene was now permanently blind in one eye. So you know what that means, right? That means that they could have let him out the next day, go, go do your boxing thing, we don't care. He can't. Because no state is going to sanction a one-eyed prize fighter. So he was so close before, but now that dream of becoming the world middleweight champion, dead. It died that night on that operating table. Isolation. Injustice. Unfair circumstances. Those are sources of doubt. Maybe this morning you're here and you're you're feeling isolated. I mean, we've come through a long period of isolation of COVID, and that's had a lot, a lot, a lot of negative effects. I've seen some of that firsthand. Uh, maybe you're experiencing unjust 
injustice, unjust circumstances at work or in your neighborhood. That's one aspect. That's one source of doubt. But there's another source of doubt from our passage, and I would argue that this particular source of doubt is really what's at the root of John's doubt. And it's our personal view of God. Our personal view of God. Verse 19. John sent the disciples to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And then at the risk of being redundant, Luke writes, when the man came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Circumstances, as unjust and as isolationistic they are, and as unfair as they are, they are not at the root of John's doubt. How do I know that? Because it doesn't fit his M.O. How do I know that? Because Jesus defends John. Right? Like, there's a crowd of people around Jesus, and then two of John's disciples come to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? That's John, our, our rabbi's question to you, Jesus. That's asked publicly. The crowd hear John's question. Well, what's the crowd thinking? Well, wait a minute. This mighty man of God, all of a sudden he's turned tail? Huh. What's that about? So Jesus defends his cousin. Drop down to verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? What did you crowds, what did you crowds, you people, go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. Quoting from Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. John is not soft. John is not fickle. We can be soft. We can be fickle. That's not John's issue. That's not why John is doubting, why John is questioning. What's John's issue here is his personal view of God, and in particular, his personal view of Messiah. That is at the root of his doubt. You see, our views of God, our view of God, it shapes our expectations of God. It really does. How you think of God, it shapes your expectations of God. And so, you know, if you think, for example, that, well, God never does miracles anymore, then that's your, that will shape your expectation, meaning you're probably not going to be praying for that kind of stuff because you're not expecting to see it, and you probably won't see it. But if the if you think converse to that, then no, God can still do those sorts of things. Then you'll pray along those lines, and invariably you will see those things take place. John's view of Messiah shaped his expectations of Messiah, and John believed that Messiah would bring judgment. When Messiah comes, he's going to bring judgment. How do I know that? Why do I say that? Keep your finger in chapter 7. Flip back with me to chapter 3 of Luke. John is in the wilderness. People are coming out to hear him, to be baptized by him. Verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 16, John answered and said to them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When Messiah comes, he's bringing judgment. That's what John believed. And so I'm sure that John was in that prison cell, John the Baptist, for just doing his job. But I'm sure he's like, you know what? I've read the scriptures. I know what scriptures say. When Messiah comes, yeah, he's going to be bringing good news, but he's also going to be bringing judgment. Well, I've seen the Messiah. In fact, I baptized the Messiah. It's Jesus, my cousin. Jesus is the Messiah. So it's just a matter of time before Messiah starts to pour out judgment. And part of the pouring out of judgment is he springs me from this prison cell that I don't belong in and does bad stuff to the people who put me here. It's just a matter of time. Well, for John, those days in prison rolled over into weeks. And the weeks in prison rolled over into months. And the months piled up, month after month after month. Huh. Scripture says that Messiah, when he comes, he's going to bring salvation, but he's also going to pour out judgment. That's what Scripture's clear about. Well, I've seen the Messiah. It's Jesus. I baptized Messiah, and I hear he's, he's out doing stuff. So he's here but I'm still in here. I, I'm not hearing stuff about judgment being poured out by God's Messiah. Huh. Is Jesus really the one who's to come? Or should we be expecting someone else? With dreams of a boxing championship now done, RC focused on simple survival. So after serving nine years... Nine years of hard time for crimes he did not commit. He launched an appeal to the state, hoping that the state would overturn his conviction. And so he launched that appeal. The appeal went out, and it came back denied. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you trusting God for something? You're trusting God for something. You've been trusting God for years for something, and it hasn't happened hasn't happened. Something you even think that this is God's will for you and it hasn't happened. You know, maybe, maybe it's healing. Maybe it's healing of a relationship, physical healing. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's something like that. Wanting to increase your family, whatever that is. Trusting God for something that hasn't happened and now you're starting to doubt. God, do you really care about me? I know you care about him. Do you really care about me? I know you have a plan for her, but doesn't really seem like you have a plan for me. Seems like you're just making this up as you go along. God, are you even there? Are you real? Is the Bible really true? If that's you this morning, 
And the good news is that Jesus has answers. He has an answer for your doubt from our text. Let's look at the second part of our passage. Jesus' answer for doubt. Luke writes, starting in verse 22, So Jesus replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So there's three parts to Jesus' answer for doubt. And the first part is this, that we have to reevaluate our view of God. We have to re- not reevaluate God, reevaluate our view of God. That's what Jesus, in effect, tells John in his answer. Because in verse 22, uh, and you can't really see it in your translations, but it's much clearer in the Greek. In verse 22, when he says, go back and, and, and what you've seen and heard, and the blind receive sight, the lame walk, that part, uh, he's alluding to three texts in the book of Isaiah, a book that John the Baptist would have known intimately well because he's prophesied of there, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. The gospel writers apply that to John. So there's three texts in verse 22 that Jesus applies to in Isaiah 26, 35, and 61, which John would have picked up in that answer. Right? And so Jesus is, in effect, pointing John back to the Scripture. Like, you're right, John. You're, you're partially right. You're on the right track, but he's pointing him back to Scripture, the Scriptures that he knew so well. Right? He's got to reevaluate his view of Messiah. See, like, if you're starting to doubt, you need, we need to reevaluate our view of God. Not God, but our view of God, and our reevaluation of our view of God has to be based on truth. It's not based on culture, pop culture, Western culture. It's not based on Gallup polls or anything like that. It's based on truth. And as Jesus said, thy word is truth. You see, if God's not doing what you want, if God's not doing what you expect, the fault isn't with God. It's with your view of God. So we have to reevaluate our view of God. The second part to Jesus' answer is that in our reevaluation of our view of God, we have to allow for the mystery of God's sovereignty. Again, that's what Je- Jesus, in effect, tells John. Because each of those three Isaianic texts that he alludes to in verse 22, in Isaiah 26, 35, and 61, go back and read Isaiah 26, and Isaiah 35, and Isaiah 61. Each of those passages talk about judgment that Messiah is supposed to pour out. John is right. Messiah, one of the things that he's supposed to do is pour out judgment. But it's not John and his view of Messiah that dictates the timing of judgment, but it's God who dictates the timing of judgment. And we see this uh, best in Luke chapter 4. So if you keep your finger in Luke 7... Flip back to Luke chapter 4. So Jesus goes into the wilderness of, of testing. He comes out triumphantly and he begins his public ministry. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And they give him the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he finds the text in Isaiah 61. Right? And so verse 17, he unrolls it and he finds this place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, verse 20, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, everybody's looking at him. Verse 21, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah 61.1, this scripture today is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, though, does something very interesting. Because if you go back to Isaiah 61.1 in the book of Isaiah, that last line says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. John expected both. He only got one. That tripped him up. That's what has tripped him up. He's expecting Messiah to do both. Messiah's only doing one right now. The point is, it's Messiah who sets the timetable for Messiah's messianic ministry, which includes judgment, not John and John's view of Messiah. God is sovereign, and he alone sets the timing of events in our life and not our view of God. The longer I walk with God, the more I'm convinced that uh, God has... He's got the perfect timepiece, right? Being God, being our creator. The perfect timepiece for all of our lives. He's got the perfect timing, the perfect timepiece. But each of us have our own individual watches for our own lives. And so we kind of have our own timing in terms of uh, when I should be going off to college and when I should be getting married and when I should be having kids and when I should be doing this, that, and the other thing. And God will periodically... Tap me, tap you on the shoulder and say, you know what, your watch is fast again. Turn it back. Your watch is running fast again. Turn it back. Right? God is sovereign and he sets a timing. Not me and not my view of God. You see, the shortest distance between two points is not always the best distance. And God is not honor-bound to take us through the shortest distance. He's honor-bound to take us through the best distance. So we've got to reevaluate our view of God if we're really experiencing doubts in our hearts. And in that reevaluation, we have to allow for the mystery of God's sovereignty. And thirdly, the third part of Jesus' answer is that we have to recognize that God's works stem from or proceed from his nature. Look at the last verse of our passage, verse 23. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. The New American Standard translates that more literally. Blessed is the one who keeps from stumbling in me. Right? Jesus links who he is with what he does. Who God is determines what God does. God always acts according to his nature. Right? He always and only acts according to his nature, his perfect nature. So, like, we can understand God truly, but we can't understand God exhaustively, comprehensively. Like, we can understand God truly through the Scripture, uh, through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside us when we repent and place our faith in Jesus, or the Holy Spirit through Scripture. We can understand God truly, the one true God, but we can never understand him, this infinite being, this eternal being, exhaustively, comprehensively. That, we can't. Right? There's never going to come a day when we're with him in glory. 
a trillion years into glory. And we're going to look at God and say, you know what, God? I now know you as well as you know you. I've learned all there is to know about you. A gazillion years in glory that will never happen. Ever. Right? We can know God truly, but we can never know God fully, comprehensively, which means then that there's going to be times when God does things, God allows things that you're not going to understand. And that's why when faced with doubts about God, you have to ground your faith in who God is. Because we're not always going to know the answer to the question, why? Why is this happening? Why now? But we can always know the answer to the question, who? Who it is? Who loves me? Who cares for me? Who sent his son to die on the cross for me? Something I did not deserve, but he chose to do that anyway. And that we celebrated at communion. That's the God who holds us in his hands. So after 19 years in prison for serving crimes that he did not commit. Some of you here aren't even 19 years old. After 19 years in prison, R.C., he lost hope. Remember, he sent out an appeal 10 years earlier. That was denied. He, He lost hope. But then, unbeknownst to R.C., a couple lawyers kind of randomly came across his file, and they just kind of looked at it, and, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. And so they started to dig more, and it's like, oh, whoa, whoa, there's, there's something here. So they went to R.C., said, you know, we want to launch another appeal for you. He's like, sure, I got time. <laughs> and so they launched another appeal. And after 19 years of unlawful imprisonment for serving time for crimes he did not commit, the appeal went out and it came back and it was successful. The judge ruled, this is the judge's ruling, he ruled that the extensive record clearly demonstrates that the conviction was predicated upon an appeal to racism rather than reason and concealment rather than disclosure. So after 19 years of being unjustly imprisoned for crimes he did not commit, R.C., Reuben Hurricane Carter, was a free man. But his life's journey had been completely altered with prison. Remember what, what it was? Like back in the 60s, it was like to be the middleweight champion of the world. That was his mission. That was what he was gunning for, what he's moving towards. But a couple decades later, that had all changed. So 1990, he he moved to Toronto, and he founded the Association for the Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted. And from the 90s and the 2000s, and he died in 2014, he spent the rest of his life traveling around, helping people who were wrongfully accused of crimes. That became his new mission, in life. That's how he, he made his, his dent, how he sought to make an impact in this world. Not in the way that he first thought he would. 
and definitely not in the timing that he thought. But God is sovereign. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you 